to episode six of Pint Size Reptile Podcast. I'm joined with Travis and Jason. How are y'all doing? Doing good. Doing all right. Travis got attacked by one of his snakes, and now his hand's going to fall off. <laughs> it's not falling off. Are you surviving? <laughs> I'm surviving. <clears throat> yeah, I thought you got pretty good. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it he, he messed me up pretty good. But that's the way it is with kukris. It's, you know, their teeth are designed to totally lacerate and that's exactly what it did (laughs) now what um how big's the the snake that got you uh it's you know maybe maybe 18 inches and his his head's about the size of my pinky finger okay how long are the teeth at an 18 inch one they're not huge um here give me a sec they're just shaped, shaped awkward and, and do a lot of damage. And people make fun of me for not wanting to get bit by snakes. I'm not getting bit by that snake. That's for fucking sure. Yeah, I don't think you and I keep stuff with teeth that long, though. No, no. I don't even have arboreal stuff. Well, no, well, I got rainbows. I will tell you, an adult rainbow. I mean, you got them. Adult rainbows yeah. have pretty big ass teeth. <clears throat> Compared to other boas, definitely. Well, cause, like the first time I saw my adult male yawn. Because I always thought, like, ah, they're probably like red tail teeth. And then I saw my adult male yawn. I was like, holy fuck, I don't want to get bit by this. That's cool when you can catch a yawn. I've only got, like, I think oh. one good picture of it. Oh. This is a skull of one that I had, that I cleaned. Oh, wow. That is a fucked up, t- like, so people can't see on the that's video. That's at least no an video, inch. But- is- and you can see, that there's two of them here. I lost one of them in the cleaning process, but. So that's the jaw and then it comes out that's weird hold on let's see why that made you ble- bleed yeah that's a good one. Oh, that's a cool specimen to have well just the way they stick out the the side there made to thrash around yeah crazy yeah I'll aggressive st- i'll <laughs> stick with my uh my non-fucked up toothed snakes so uh, anything going on besides Travis getting attacked and, and almost killed by his little tiny snake? Anything else going on with y'all in your collections since the last time we talked? Uh, rubber boas are still in the fridge. I'm kind of getting uh tank set up for them, and I decided I was going to try to shave some of the glass down to slide a little easier in these old neodeshas, and I broke two of them yesterday, so... Or uh, I guess that was Monday, so I had to order some new pieces of glass to have cut and fit in there. Good job. I always try to make things better, and I 100% make it worse. I uh, My rubbers are still in just because I'm trying to get rid of the – I mean, I had the mite issue. And I was like, well, I know one group of snakes that doesn't have the mites. We'll leave them in there until I'm completely done with mites, which I think I'm think i I'm on top of it now. I think that I'm seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, sorry you're going through that again. That is a Ugh. nightmare. But then I can bring my rubbers out and uh, and then feed them a ton until they're ready to go back to sleep for another three months. <laughs> So solid three, three months out of feeding out of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's the pain in the butt. Like I've got to pump a bunch of food into them. And then my mail is like, I don't know, was it August, September, probably September, October. He's like, ah, I think I'm done eating. Yeah. That's usually what happens to my mail. He just turns off around August. And I'm like, dude, you're too small to fuck. You need to go eat. I need you to eat. But it's funny how consistent they all are though. Man, they've got that set. They know, they know when. Mm-hmm. And it's, what's funny is like, we talk about the care of certain animals and depending on where you live and this and that, but so many of these animals still follow the same 
no matter where you live. Like, so I live down here at sea level and around Houston, you know, and, and you live way up in the middle of the mountains, Jason in Colorado. So like, it's weird that they still follow the same time tale. Like that you would think that pressure. Well, they never go outside, you know, they, they live indoors, they have indoor temperatures and they still, but I feel like all the snakes get that, you know, I just would think with pressure differences being different and altitude being different, you would think that would affect them more and they would, I don't know, but they still are. All of our snakes quit eating at the same time and are ready to go into the fridge at the same time. And, you know, it's not a forced thing where like, some people force snakes into uh brumation or whatever. Our snakes are like, no, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready for it. Yeah. You almost have to force them to not go into brumation. Yeah. They just, they just shut down. Yeah. They want it. Now, did you do your, um, your rosies? I didn't. This year? I've, I have not fed them. So what I'm going to do is I, I've, I, I've not really fed them much, and then I'm going to pump food into them in the next couple months, and then I'm gonna try. I'm gonna see if maybe just like I can treat them with food, and I didn't really cool them down. But I had them in a cooler rack. I didn't have them in a warmer. I used to have them in like a in a rack with like my my Kenyan sandboas, and they would just <laughs> they'd stay warm. So they were in a cooler rack. Well, but, and I think that fasting periods a, a trigger for them too. That was kind of what I was hoping. Because well, with all this, I didn't want to move them in because the mites kind of came after I'd already moved the rubber. So I was like, ah, I'll leave them out and try and treat them. But like, you know what? She can go without some meals, and he can go without meals, and we'll see if if that does the trick. But we'll see. But this episode is about one of my other favorite snakes. Uh, we're going to talk about the sandboa, more specifically the Kenyan sandboa, because there are a ton of different types of sandboas. Uh, Jason, you have a handful of. You've got the Russians. Right. So, right. and then you've got Kenyans that are, and we'll talk about your Kenyans and kind of what they're mixed with and how we'll get into that. Do you have any of the other Samboas? Uh, no, that's it. Just those. So I've got a uh, Russian that I got from you. He's doing awesome. I've got Kenyans. I've got Indian Samboas, which we'll get to those in an episode because those are a weird ass Sambo. If you're used to Samboas, you're not going to be used to this one because it, one, it has a tail. Which, if you're a Sambo person, you realize, yes, they have a tail, but they don't actually use it. The first time Indian Sambo with a tail wrapped around my finger as if it was holding on was the weirdest thing on earth. Because I'm not used to that. Because, as we'll talk with Samboas, they could fall off the floor if it was possible. They're not great at holding on to stuff. Uh, but I have those. And then I also have, I'm missing one. Oh, Rough Scales. I have Rough Scales Samboas. Which are awesome little Samboas. Very cool. And then, so I'm hoping to add some of the other ones. And we'll get to some other episodes. Because there's also the Arabian Sambo, which... Everyone knows is the goofy ass sock puppet looking Samboa with its <laughs> eyes on top of its head. And then there's some other ones you don't see that commonly in the in the hobby. So but today it is the Kenyan Samboa, which I've got an entire room full of them almost. So we'll talk a little bit about where they're located, and then we'll get into kind of uh, their diet, how they act, and then we'll get into some of their care. They're a very common, they're the most common Samboa in the hobby, so it feels right to be the first one we talk about. This is one of the ones where Travis doesn't have any Samboas. He he doesn't know any of this stuff. Nope. I bet he's got a book about it behind him right there. <laughs> I don't. Actually. He doesn't. We beat him. Right. We've got books he doesn't have, and it's a snake that he doesn't <laughs> know about. Yay, here we go. Funny. <laughs> but uh, So the Kenyan Samboa is an East African Samboa, and it is found in – here, I'll even pull up the map, and I'll give you all the countries it's found in. But it is a, it's going to be – where's my map at? Just talk amongst yourselves. Hold on. So I see the countries of uh, uh, Egypt, Sudan, Ethiopia. Niger. Uh, Niger, yeah. Somalia, Tanzania, 
Kenya, obviously. And I'm not sure how to pronounce this one. Uh, Eritrea? That sounds good. I don't know. E-R-I-T-R-E-A? That sounds good. <laughs> I don't know. It's I, I know that it's going to be in your, your more northeastern countries, very arid northeastern countries. Um, there is a common, another common Samboa in the hobby that many people tend to confuse for the Samboa, the Kenyan Samboa, and that is the Saharan Samboa. That is a West African Samboa. It is very similar in color, but if you ever see them in person, you can really see the differences in them. They, uh, they're, it's hard to explain. They're shinier. I don't know if if you see a, a Saharan Samboa, they're shinier. It's hard, it's hard to explain, and they've got a little pointed tail. They've got this they're a little little smoother. Um... Yeah, I had a pair for a while, and I feel like their scales had a smoother shape and feel to them than the Kenyans do. As babies, especially on the tail, yeah. And as babies, they do look very similar, but you can see that tail. That tail's got this weird little point. It's it's a, you know, a Kenyan sambo tail does come to a point, but this one is a very weird like, like it's been pinched, and then there's a point after that. But uh, also the Saharan samboa, the another difference is it lays eggs. That is <laughs> the weird. It's one of two boa species that lay eggs both of them being samboas uh but it lay and i say an egg if you've ever seen a saharan samboa egg it is you'd think it was a bad egg you would think that you need to throw it out because it's about paper thin and it it's kind of got little windows in it and it incubates for about seven to 14 days and then it hatches so that's the that that would be cool to have just for that just to get eggs out of them and watch them hatch Yes, that is that is my plan. I, I had I got one because I wanted a captive bred one, so I got one captive bred one, and then a week after I got it, it died. Just it just didn't make it. So I'm still holding out hope because most of the the Saharan samboas you find, ninety nine percent of the Saharan samboas you find are going to be imports. You'll see them on tons of import tables at shows. You usually see them as adults, um, and a lot of people you'll see them post them in some of these sambo groups. Going look at my new Kenyan sambo, and then we kind of have to break their heart and go. uh, not a Kenyan Samboa, because again, the color is very, very similar. The pattern is very, very similar, uh, but it is definitely not the same. And it will, it will not breed together. One lays eggs, one doesn't lay eggs. So. Mine were um, wild caught, and I had the typical wild caught problems with them. Yeah, they don't want to eat frozen usually. They, yeah, I could get them to eat live a little bit, but they just from the get go, you could tell they weren't healthy. Like they never left quarantine. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it just it was a it was a bad purchase on my. Uh, for me, I guess I thought I was just kind of excited when I, you know, it was, shouldn't have done it, but that's why I've held, I've held out. I, I want them. I want that species. Cause it's one of the few species I don't currently have. And we were at actually just at Corpus Christi show. And my buddy, John Grant ended up buying the snake that I was, I was debating. There've been several Saharan Sambos that have come in with aberrant patterns, very reduced patterns. And there was an amazing male there, but it was an adult. And I knew that I didn't have the patience to get this adult. That's only going to want to eat live. You know, it's only one going to eat live. And it may not even want to eat live rodents. It may want to eat live lizards, which is a whole other problem. So I was like, I'll wait until you get it, you breed it, and then you give me some babies that are eating frozen and we'll be good. I saw his picture of that. That is a cool looking snake. Yeah. I was one of the pointed out. I was like, hey, look at this. And then Katie, my wife was like, you want it? And I was like, yes, no, yes, no. I debated about it. And then uh, he texted me from the other side of the show with it in his hand. I was like, oh, well, there goes there goes that snake. So I guess the answer is no. I don't want it. Pressure's off. <laughs> But uh, so the Kenyan Samboa, you don't see a lot of them as imports because they're so common in the hobby. I don't know legalities on importing them from the areas they're in, but I mean, I would see no purpose in importing them. There's tons of them in the hobby. If you go to a pet store and buy a Samboa as a baby, it is most likely going to be a Kenyan. So if you're buying a baby Samboa, 
it's a safe bet that it's not going to be Saharan because again, those are those are all wild caught for the most part, and they're brought in as adults. And you'll tend to see them all come in kind of at the same time. You'll go to a show and you'll see a bunch of people with them because they kind of get all brought in on the same shipments. So the Kenyans, though, I find to be very easy to take care of. I think that they're a great beginner pet, and we'll get into the care of them as a pet. But again, they are found in East uh, East Africa. And as their name suggests, they are found in very dry, sandy places. And you can just look at them and go, yeah, this thing is meant to be buried underneath the sand. Its eyes are you know, somewhat on top of its head. Not as goofy as the Arabian Sambos, which eyes are literally on top of its head. But the Kenyan's eyes are set up there. And they strike insanely fast. Have you noticed that with yours, Jason? How fast they can go if you just move a pinky across the top? Oh, yeah. They'll strike at it pretty pretty aggressively i like how they're they're so i guess well hidden but still sensing it that they kind of just shoot right out from under the bedding oh yeah i it's it's crazy that's why I'm, i never i never reach in and just grab a samboa like open the tub and touch it right away because they have such a great feeding response and they strike so fast that it's more of a strike first ask questions later kind of thing with those guys so i'm always i always have a cage hook where like i'll tap them just let them know all right we're not feeding and then you got to pick them up uh, and pick them up from the bottom. Because like I said before, these things are not uh, – they could fall off the ground. They, they are clumsy. Now, if you read uh, certain parts of certain books and things online, there are some stories of them climbing trees. So they can climb. They are not good at it. Uh, just if you own one and let it move through your hands, you'll see they are not good at climbing or holding on to stuff or getting off the ground. But there are stories of them eating birds and falling out of trees, holding on to birds. So, I mean, I guess that happens. But that's also like ball pythons. We talk about ball pythons being basically a, uh, a terrestrial snake. But we know that they will climb. They can. But they're mostly going to live on the ground. So, samboas are mostly made. makes me wonder how tall, how high up in the trees and how, I mean, is there a lot of, I would assume that's trees with a lot of things to grab onto for them to be able to climb like that. Like either low branches or really really rough bark you know yeah they're not rats they're not like rat snakes rat snakes can climb a vertical wall you know yeah and they're not their scales their belly scales are not definitely not built like that so it would definitely have to maybe be uh shrub like shrubs where they have some a lot of branches and stuff to climb into and stuff like that they're probably not climbing straight up a tree i can't imagine they're climbing straight up a tree they just like that video that carpet python that Shoots half its body straight up and then wraps another coil and climbs so fast. Yeah, that's a sandboat. Was it a retic? It's a retic. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a cool video, but I can't see a sandboat doing that one. No, they uh, they are a small snake, so they're they're a sexually dimorphic snake, which is like one thing I find very interesting about them. That it's if you find a big sandboa, it's a female. There's I've never seen a big male where I'm like, oh man, that's a huge male. Whereas like. I had a buddy that had a Burmese python that's, I think he is 18 foot long. I know it because we measured him and it was an 18 foot long male. And I was like, that's a massive male. You're not going to get a huge male Samboa. They are small, which is, which is good because small snakes, small males like to breed. So anybody that's ever had bred snakes knows that big fat males are great to look at, but they're not going to do shit. I think sandboas are interesting in the fact that they are, I mean, of the different stuff I keep anyway, probably the most extreme from male to female size. Even when I look at like the rubber boas, um, you know, they're, they're visually different, but not as dramatically as I feel like the sandboas are. 
you see some, you know, photos of these tiny little males on these huge females. Oh, yeah. And they go after them. Well, they're not only sexually dimorphic just physically as an adult, but they're easy to, I say easy, if you're used to it, they're easy to sex just visually by looking at their tails from the underside of their tails. Uh, the, the female has a much shorter tail than the male. Um, the problem is you'll see people post in Facebook groups a picture from above of their snake and they go, what sex is this? I'm like, that's not what we mean by get a picture of the tail. I can't tell from the, from the top. But you can tell from the bottom. And they're also just super easy to palpate and go, yeah, this is a male. You can feel that hemipene in there. Uh, another yeah. reason I love them versus like colubrids. You know, Travis, I don't know. Have you sexed your, uh, uh, what were the babies that you had? Were the kukrits? No. The uh, Rathiophis? The Rathiophis. Have you sexed those? No. God, no, 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 no. Um, one, their bodies are like more than a third of their body length is tail. <laughs> Jeez. And two, they are super, super, super fragile. And their hemipenes are super tiny, so you can't pop them, and you can't probe them without causing irreversible damage. Kind of like green trees, you know, people have the green trees. And they oh, have... worse than green trees. Really? Like, at least with green trees, after a couple of years, you can probe them. You, you, can't, you still can't do that with, oh, damn. The, with the beak snakes. So, so the best that you have right now is to send sheds into... Uh, Okay, so my, my internet messed up, but we are back, and we'll have Travis pick back up where we're talking about uh, with sexing his weird snakes that you can't touch or look at incorrectly, or else they'll ruin their hemipenes. <laughs> we can... You... Basically, you've got either the... Buy an animal that you already know is male or female because it's proven... Or you send your sheds into Ben Morrill, and he will test them for you. Um, his test is not 100% effective for these guys, because they're not true colubrids. So he will, you know, he has he warned me ahead of time that it might not be accurate. Um, you know, with my original ones, when I sent them in, he his reply back was, I think you have a pair but I'm not going to promise anything. And it turned out that he was correct because obviously I got eggs out of them. So, so are they, I know that I was listening to a couple of different people that do the sexing stuff. And a lot of it is based on was it the W is it WZ? Is that the other chromosome? WZ is what colubrids and colubrids is ZW. Yeah. Pythons and boas are XY. are XY. Yeah. And so like a lot of the tests I think are, or some of the tests are aimed at colubrids. So they're aimed at, the ZW chromosome is not the XY, so you can't use it for some of the boas. Right, you can't use it for any of the boas yeah. or pythons yet. He's working on that. Um, with the colubrids and the other, you know, colubroid and colubrid-like and all those other oddballs, like the, I, th I think he targets... Um, the sex determining factor, SDF. So you get two separate bands. Yeah. Um, but I'm not positive. And in the, 
in the subset that you know the the beak snakes fall into they're they're divergent enough that his test does not hit all of the time unless conditions are absolutely perfect and pcr can be real persnickety sometimes so yeah it's just one of those things that's why I like my sample. I always see people having, I can't pop snakes worth a damn. I'm, I'm horrible at it. I don't trust that I'm doing it right. So I love sambos because I can just run my thumb down the tail and go, oh, no, that's a male. Oh, that's a female. And I'm I'm pretty much right every time because you, you can feel those hemipenes pop back up. So that's one thing about that I like with, with Kenyan sambos is not only when you look at adults, you can see them differently. When you look at the tails on the outside, you can tell male, female. And they're easy to, enough to palpate with your thumb and feel those hemipenes. So they're super easy to sex, which is one thing I love about them. Uh, on the visual uh, side, do they have the spurs? Yeah, some. Yeah, but it's not. I think they're pretty – yeah, they both have them, so it's not yeah. like a rosy or okay. a I mean, Like, you know, with rubbers, the males have – very visible spurs. Yeah, this yeah. is this is kind of like with uh like yeah. boa constrictors where like spurs aren't always the or or they're not no, ball it, pythons yeah. are not always or ball pythons. Yeah. We're both where both sexes have them. Yeah. Yeah. So I can look at them if I've got a male and a female together. It's very obvious to me the tail difference, but I second guess myself when I try to use that method. So I like that you can palpate them. Yeah, I'm I'm there with you. When you have a whole litter, it makes it nice and easy. Uh, I will tell you the the uh, one thing that will really screw you up is when you have. 15 babies and only one is a female that'll make you question everything you've done even when it's you've... impossible oh i can tell you it is because i still have the one female i kept the one female sold the 14 males uh but i sexed that litter i don't know seven eight times every i mean i sexed them when i sold them and i was like i'm still a male that, that was the one thing I was like at least if it's a male it's it's okay yeah it's definitely a male because you can fill the pop there's not going to be a pop in it's the definitive female. yeah, yeah. <clears throat> And I'd say that with any sexing method, whether you're probing, uh, palpating, or popping, a male is definitive. A female could always be kind of tricking you and holding out on you. Yeah, yeah. And, and then there's the in-betweeners. And in, in any species, we talk about those. There's those females that, uh, or males that kind of like if you're looking at uh, tail length, uh, it could go either way. Or sometimes you'll see people probe, and you're like, man, it seems like a probe's pretty deep for a female, but not enough for a male. And so... That's why I like palpating. I'm like, okay, I can I can feel it. If I can feel the difference. Again, because I'm not great at popping. I can't always make the hemipene pop out. And and I feel like sometimes I'm like, did I not do it right? Or is it a female? So. And I think some species are easier to pop. Some are easier to palpate. Some are easier to probe. Yeah. I don't know. I think uh, I palpate um, rainbow bows almost exclusively because they're like sambos. It's real easy to feel. I feel like the muscles in like Bo Imperator are a little harder for me to tell. So those I will, if I feel them, I'll mark it as a male. But if I have a female, I'll always try to use a second method yeah. to double check. Yeah. And I, and I, I'll palpate the, the boas, uh, whether it's a rainbow or a common boa or, and, but I can see it with the common, but like I've, I've also probed them before because the babies on a, on a boa are big enough. You can still probe them. Um, whereas like rainbows, I'm glad you can palpate them because they got some small little tails when they're born. I yeah, so do the sandboas. Sandboas are crazy. Like a tiny little snake. But uh, so back to the, as far as wild goes, their habitat is exactly what you would expect out of a snake that's called a sandbow. It, it is a dry, arid animal. It does eat uh, small mammals, but it'll eat small lizards. It'll eat birds. Again, there's stories of them eating birds. Um, 
There's pictures of them. There's pictures of them eating birds. That is true. There are pictures of them eating birds. Now, whether they caught that bird on the ground and then people found them eating on the ground. The one story I I hear is that they heard a thud, turned around and found the Samboa laying on the ground with the bird wrapped up. So, I mean, obviously went up and got it. But again, don't expect, you can give your Samboa something to climb on, but don't be surprised if you never see your Samboa climb on it. Or don't be surprised if you never see your Samboa. That's also a possibility. Uh, they do like to stay underneath the bedding. That's one thing uh, I always get a complaint when people talk about them as pets. I'm like, I think they're a great pet. People are always like, well, you can't see them. I was like, sure you can. Just take it out. You can. Well, in my limited experience, if you see it and it's not burrowed, that means it's hungry. Yeah. Uh, so as far as appearance and all, and, and I guess we need to talk about the actual size. Females get roughly two foot full grown. They're pretty thick. They are a sausage-shaped animal. Um, they they kind of look overweight, but they're not. They're just they're they're shaped they're shaped short and fat. They are a sausage. The males are really going to stay about a foot or less, and they're going to stay fairly skinnier. They're not going to get that thick shape that you have in your females. Um, so don't be surprised. Also, uh, don't be surprised when they stop eating, which we talked about earlier with like the rubber boas. That is usually how I judge when my male Samboas are ready for breeding. When I go to feed everything and my male Samboas refuse to eat, you know, two or three times in a row, I'm like, all right, they want to breed because they get their mindset on one thing and that's all they want to do. And so they'll quit eating. I'm sure you have the same thing with yours as well. Yeah, they do. Um, what? So I've never actually paired any of mine. I've got um, just the three pairs, but I haven't bred them. What age are you putting yours together? Age and size range are you looking for? Uh, so I usually like them be over three years. I'll take four years if I can. And then that's another thing. Like it's tricky for me. People ask, you know, what size is the best size for my female to breed? And I've got so many of them that it's a visual thing. I can look at it and go, yeah, that one can breed now. Or I can look at it and go, eh, it needs another year. I think if you look at any of the, like, the literature on them, they usually, I think, say 300 grams. A big, big 300 grand female is ready. Um, you'll obviously get a better litter out of a big female like that. Uh, don't be surprised if the first litter is small, you know, four or five or six babies. And then don't be surprised if you have a big female that drops 29 babies. Uh, so it's, it's a, a large it's range. for a, a snake that size. It's crazy. I was interested in the uh, Warren Treacher's book. I, I remember reading where he had a correlation between weight in grams and how many babies he was typically seeing that oh, I guess yeah. was pretty consistent. That was pretty neat. Yeah. I, I remember reading um, it. It's been a while since I've read that one. I do remember seeing that. Um, the, there's kind of like any other snake, the bigger and older, the better, but they can, I mean, they can, the males again, are going to stay small. So that's one thing. If you've got, if you've got what you think is a female and you're at year three and it's still under a foot and pretty skinny, you don't have a female. You have a male. So that's one of the great thing about, I mean, I guess it's not great if you went three years raising it and then realize it's male, but at least you can go, yeah, okay, this thing's not a female. I can see it. Again, also, it'll quit eating. You'll see posts all the time on Facebook's group, Facebook groups going, uh, my Sambo quit eating. And the first question people ask, well, is it male is or it female? Male? Yeah. Is it a male? Then that's, that's why I quit eating. Um, but as far as, ooh, as far as the size, I don't know. I haven't kept great records on mine. I know Warren does in his book. That's one thing. If, if anybody wants 
most of the information that we have is from Warren Treacher's The Sandboa Book, which if you like Sandboas at all, or snakes in general, it is a great book. It is. It's really comprehensive, and it covers, uh, I mean, every Sandboa that there is. They have other people that contribute that really there's a lot of insight in it that it's, it's really kind of a fun read. Um, I found that passage here where we were just talking about. It says, uh, babies produce, so the mother's weight to babies produce. So this is her pre, um, pre-pregnancy pre weight. It's close to 30 grams of body weight uh, is equal to one baby. Yeah. I mean, so I can see as that. an example of 300 grams. So if you're going to start breeding when they hit 300 grams, they're saying you can expect about 10 babies out of, out of one that's that size. That's about what I, I mean, I would, I've gotten. Yeah. That makes sense. And they can get, I mean, I've seen some big ones. The, one of the females I got, so it's kind of the funny story. Normally, you know, someone wants to give you a snake. Uh, if you're someone like us who are like, great, I can get me a breeder. It's going to be a male. Um, it's never a female. So someone contacted me once and said they were getting rid of a Sambo. They bought it for their son at PetSmart a year ago. This is the point when I got it. It was, a, it was had it for a year. I was like, cool, I'll come get it. And so I go over there and it's on a 10 gallon tank that is half filled with Aspen. So I can't see shit in the bottom of this tank. They tell me there's a snake in there, half filled with Aspen and they've had it for a year. So I was like, all right, well, they got a baby snake at PetSmart. Had it for a year. Gloves. Well, I reached in there barehanded. I was like, we'll do this. But I was like, it's got to be small. I was like, it's got to be small. They've had it for a year. They didn't, they don't sell adult Sambos at PetSmart. I've never seen them. I reached down in there into that like six inches of Aspen. And what I felt was not a fucking baby. It was not a one-year-old snake. I was like, that is thick. And I pulled out this full-grown, probably, I think she was probably 400 to 500 grams. And she was pushing probably 18 inches um, or more. And she was massive. And uh, she's been a great female. She, she's produced for me. But that was one of those situations where, like, oh, hell yeah. Like, you take it out and you go, that's a female. There was no, there was no question, do I have to sex this thing? It is obvious it was a female. Um, but that's another thing I, I, I like about sexual dimorphism. You can go, Oh, good. I know this one. Or like my rosy boas, you know, I can put my rosy boas together to breed. They're identical in color and pattern, but my female is much bigger. So I can go. So it's easy to go. Yeah. Like when I separate them back out, which one's the female, which one's the male. Yeah. So, which I, I feel is probably very hard for certain species that are like mono toned and the same size. And you put them together and you're like, shit, which one's the male, which one's the female. Cause you hear all the stories of someone separating them thinking they, this was the female and all of a sudden the male over here laid eggs and like, Oh shit, that was the female. It's like Travis was just talking about with his beak snakes. This is why I cohab them. I don't have to worry about which one's which <laughs> one of them's female and there'll be eggs in there at some point. Pretty much. Yeah. Uh, so as far as, so we get into the care of Samboas, I'll talk about how I set mine up and Jason, you can talk about how you set up, set yours up. I feel so I use racks because I have so many of them. This is one species where I think a rack is great for them. I don't know how you feel about it, Jason, but that is, that is, I feel like racks work amazingly for Samboas. I agree. And I don't, not to say that they couldn't do well in another enclosure, but the fact that they want to be buried and hidden and dark, uh, it works really well for them. Yeah, I they're, they're going to stay buried for the most part. They will come out here and there, but they're going to stay buried. If you want to see them, take them out and hold them. Um, if you're going to set them up, if you got one, a 10-gallon tank is great. No, really hold It'll hold a male its entire life, and it could hold a female for a while, maybe its entire life. A 20-gallon would probably do well for a big female. 
if you're going to put it in a glass tank. Uh, what substrate are you using? I, I tend to use Aspen for mine. I use Aspen as well. Yeah, I'll use Aspen. Um, sometimes pine, but I like the Aspen's usually a little bit softer. And so I'll use Aspen on them. I do probably about two and a half, three inches deep. Yeah. Um, cause they really want to be fully submerged. Um, so no, now I keep a lot of rosy boas too, which are almost like, um, the North American version of them, if you will. One difference I do notice, uh, even though they're both dry, arid snakes, um, if I give them the option of a humidity hide, I feel like the, the sand boas will utilize that well before a rosy blow will, especially when it's getting close to um, shedding time. So I oh, might, yeah. you know, raise their humidity a little bit where with rosies, I don't ever really worry about that. Yeah. They, I, this has never been a problem for me because I'm living in a place where there's natural humidity. And so I've never had bad sheds except for like on babies. I will get maybe not the best sheds on some babies because they're on paper towel and it's kind of a different setup. Um, they don't tend to have as big of a water dish because they're in a smaller tub. So I don't get as much humidity in the, in, in there, but um, yeah, I never use humidity hides with mine, but I will, if they're having a bad shed, I will take, uh, anything with a rough edge. I have a rock sometimes that I'll, I'll move around, I'll clean off and move around. It's got rough edges and they'll be able to knock off their shed or like some of the hides where I've cut them are not super smooth on the edges. And so I'll put the hide in there and they'll be able to shed and that helps them as well. Uh, they are. So physically, if you hold one, they're weird. They're very smooth until the last like fourth of its body or just like right towards the tail. They are very, very bumpy and rough. Um, and I'm assuming that is for anchorage. That is for when they're in the sand, that gives them a little more uh, contact. It's a little, they're not as smooth, so they can actually strike out and hold on with that that rough tail. But you'll feel that if you ever hold a Samboa. It's super smooth. Then you get to the tail, it feels really weird. It feels like you're holding a different snake. It does, yeah. Which is um, different because you have the Russian Samboas, and they're smooth the whole way down. Very smooth. I was just going to ask you if any of the other stuff you keep has that rough tail because we talked about the Saharans, and I know the Saharans I had weren't like that. They yeah, they're smooth. smooth all the way. Uh, even the rough scales. I mean, the rough scales are kind of like beaded along the whole body, but they don't really have that same kind of tail. And then the Indians are smooth. They're, they have super small scales. They're super smooth the whole way down. Um, and then, like I said, the Russians are smooth the whole way down, which is great because if you get the super black Russian like I have that I got from you, it looks awesome, super smooth the whole way down. Just shiny. <laughs> yes. But so the physically that is that is one thing. Uh, like I said, they, they do strike fast. So don't put anything near their head that you don't want to get bit. Because they I mean they they're quick. They may let go, but they they strike they strike first, ask questions later. Um never been bit by a Sambo. Really? Never. I got bit by one of mine early on my wife was doing something she went to move something and, and so she wouldn't get bit i put out and i grabbed the snake and yeah i got tagged and then uh, i've got a whole rack of babies There's right now wrist. yeah well, i got a whole rack of babies right now that will bite me if i put my hand in there funny yeah it's funny while they're babies it's not not funny when they're full-grown females and i've never produced kenyan so i don't really have any i mean i have zero experience <clears throat> Other than the ones I bought as babies, so. And I will hold my finger up to the camera once again <laughs> and call y'all a bunch of babies. That's your fault. For <laughs> That's your fault for owning a snake that has knives and knives in its mouth. I mean, it's literally named after a knife. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so as far as care, people always go, "Why don't keep them on sand if they're a sand boa?" There's a couple reasons. One, sand is heavy as hell. So if you're keeping in a rack, that's a lot of weight. Plus, sand gets everywhere. Even if you're not playing on it, 
I don't know if you have this issue, but you know, when they, I go to feed my Sambos, like I said, they strike very fast. Bedding will go everywhere. You can tell after I fed Sambos because there's Aspen all over the floor at the front of the rack. Because, yep. yeah, they strike out. So imagine if that was sand, just sand everywhere. And then it gets underneath the tubs and it gets, and if you're having a glass tank, it's, ah, I'm not a big fan of sand. Uh, I've used sand as a display with some of the Russians when I've done like expos and I used to do um, some school presentations and things. And that's what people expect, I guess. So I've never kept anything on it long term, but I, my gut feeling is it's probably a lot harder to clean. Yes, I would imagine. Aspen is way easier to spot clean mm-hmm. to me. I mean, I, I'm sure you could scoop, but it's just, I, I don't know. I find it so much easier. It's lighter. It's cheaper. Uh, there's just so many positives to using Aspen for me. Some people use that crushed walnut, which kind of gives you that sand feel. Um, see that. So I guess you could use that. That's fine. Just don't use cage carpet because your animal wants to burrow. So don't use cage. Like I keep babies on paper towels, but they're that's because they're just babies and that's what they're going to be on temporarily. But they're immediately going to go underneath the paper towel. No, I don't. Now, how long are you keeping them on paper towels? Usually until I sell them, but usually I'm selling them fairly quickly. They don't they don't tend to last that long. Uh, right now I've got them a little longer than usual, but um, it's just so much easier to be able to make sure. Well, one thing is feeding, and and you've probably had this with some every now and then, where they'll grab the food and they'll take it and they'll go back into the bedding, and then two days later you're like, man, what's that smell? Mm-hmm. And then you realize they took it back into the bedding and they said, nah, I'm not going to eat this. I'm good, and they wander off. And so I don't want that with the babies. Yeah. Especially when I'm transitioning to um, frozen thawed, that I'll get that where they get that initial strike, but then decide they don't want it. Yeah. So I got to be kind of diligent about digging through the bedding and making sure. And I've even had some of my adults who eat all the time on a rare occasion go, nope. I'm like, what does that smell? And I'm, there's an adult mouse dead. It's in the back of the tub underneath all the aspen, which is why at one point I was ordering just black mice. Because it was easier to see the dead black mice in the aspen than it was to see the white mice in the aspen. And it's such a distinctive smell. Oh, anyone that's had, I mean, you, we were somewhere the other day. My wife was, I think we were in Universal. We were at, you know, so we went to Universal Studios and uh, we were walking somewhere. I looked back at Katie. I was like, there's a, there's a dead animal somewhere around here. I was like, you could just smell like there's a dead rat or a mouse or something. I can smell it. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of gross, but I mean, I can tell the difference between the smell of regurge the smell of a dead rat or the smell of a dead snake. Oh yeah. So I had my, uh, my carpet Python died a couple weeks ago. I got home. I smelled the air and I was like, Oh shit. And we had just gotten back from a show. And so it had been there for two days and I got upstairs. And as soon as I opened the door, I was like, all right, I know what that is. Uh, it's, it's definitely, you get used to those smells. And it's, I say you get used to, you don't get used to, you can identify them. You recognize it, but yeah, there's no getting used to that. You are not mm-hmm. used to that smell. We had a, a field mouse get in the house one time, get into the ductwork and die. And mm. so every, and this was the middle of winter, right? So of course, every time our forced air kicked on, it was just blowing that smell throughout the house Ugh. to the point that I, I finally cut into the duct so I could, you know, search it out and get it out of there. But yeah, that is, it's disgusting. Ugh. Anyway, so back, back to the, we'll get away from the nasty. Nasty smells. But back to the uh, Sambos. As far as care, when it comes to bedding, again, you can choose. But I like Aspen. Jason uses Aspen. Tons of people do. Uh, caging, 10 to 20-gallon tank if you do that. Or 
a suitable tub to about the same floor space. Um, it, it is good to give your females some, I mean, they, they are a thick bodied snake and they're not a snake that coils up. They don't, they're not going to coil up into a corner. I've never once seen one of my Samboas coil into a corner. Like you would see like a ball Python or even a boa, like a boa constrictor or even my rainbows, which will coil up or something. My Samboas are always just kind of just stretched out underneath the bedding across the tub. Do you think that's because they feel a different sense of security because they, they are so used to being burrowed under, I guess, a heavier load almost where your other snakes that you'll find coiled up, maybe that's their security because they're not, even the ones that burrow, like rainbow boas will burrow. You know what I mean? But I, they're never like all the way to where you can't see them under there. You can yeah. still kind of see their back out. So I wonder if that has to do with it where the, the sand boas, you know, they're not as concerned with a predator seeing them from the surface because they do go deep enough that they can stretch out and know that they're going to be fine under there. Well, I think also if you watch the way they do strike when you feed them, they are not a forward striker. Whereas uh, most of your snakes coil up and they strike forward and grab whatever it is and then wrap their coils around it. If you watch your Sambos, they are sideways strikers. If you run a, a pinky or a mouse past them, they will shoot left or right and grab it. And then they'll wrap around it. But they're not having to really anchor their whole body in one spot and shoot forward like you would see with a boa constrictor or something like that. So I think the way that they just lay underneath the sand, they're just waiting for something to come on either side of them and just they can move left or right and grab it instead of having to be coiled up. Hmm. So, That's a good point. Um, as far as temperatures go, they are definitely the warmest snake that I have in my house. Um, I keep mine. And I know, I know you keep yours thinking a little cooler than mine, but I keep my hotspot in my racks at 95, between 90, between 90 and 95 on the hotspot. And then they can move to the cool side, which is going to be down into the, the high seventies, uh, but they'll usually lay part of their body on that hotspot. They like it pretty warm. Where are you keeping yours at? So mine are set into the, the low nineties. Um, <clears throat> I say set there. So really the hotspot's probably going to be about 88 to 90 when I have it set at, you know, 92, something like that. I think one difference probably between my room and your room is my room um, does get a lot hotter. So yeah. I have a little cooler hotspot, but I have a hotter ambient. So where yours can get away maybe from that hotspot, I don't want to, I don't want to overheat my, my tubs, if that makes sense. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. No, my, my rooms, cause I got to work in it and I sweat my butt off. So I'm like, no, it's going to stay air conditioned. You guys get a hotspot and you can come hang out in the air conditioner with me if you get too hot. But, yeah. And I've always been a, I, I guess I would always err on the side of going a little bit cooler Yeah. For myself. Cause I think snake and well, any snakes really can handle cooler temperatures better than they can handle getting too hot. I agree. And, uh, and mine do fine. I mean, I don't have, I had, I don't have any feeding issues or re regurge issues. So that's kind of the numbers that I keep mine at. And um, honestly, I've been keeping rosy boas for so long that when I started keeping sand boas, I kind of mimicked what I was doing. I didn't have a lot of information on them. So I kind of mimicked what I was doing with the rosies and that's really worked well for me. What were you saying, Travis? I was saying, I agreed that snakes can tolerate cold a lot better than they can tolerate heat. Yeah. Which I think many people don't understand because we're used to them being, and I hate using this term, but I'm going to use it cold blooded. So in our mind, they, we have to keep them warm or else they'll die. But a lot of these animals can get cooler. Maybe better. Like, uh, so a friend of mine just shipped a snake to somebody who he shipped it with one of those, uh, phase 22 packs in it, uh, that can help hold, retain some heat. It wasn't a cold pack. It was to try and they, they'll retain some heat and keep them, you know, high 60s, low 70s. 
the guy got it and goes, well, it's alive, but it's cold. Maybe next time don't use a cold pack. My buddy's like, it's not a cold pack. It wasn't frozen. It, yeah, it keeps it's a simple. stability pack. Yeah. He's like, maybe next time use a heat pack. And it was a, it was a, a Klubrid. So he's like, yeah, well, if I use a heat pack, it probably would have cooked it. And you would have got a hot dead snake instead of a cool live snake. It was a milk snake. Uh, so again, I mean, that's a snake a- like that, especially can tolerate that cold. I yeah. mean, unless you just fed it the day before you shipped it, it's going to do a lot better cold. Yeah. So that was the, the, the guy, you know, gave him the old, well, I've got 30 years of experience, yada, yada, yada. I'm like, well, that, you may need to look into it a little differently. Those, those things can do pretty well. well. And that might be part of the problem, honestly. I mean, when you talk about the, the time frame, you go back 20 years. I mean, that was, I feel like every snake's requirements were a lot hotter oh, yeah. than well, what people are understanding they can get away with now. When I got into it, boa is the hot spot for a boa. Boa constrictor was 95. 95, yeah. That's what I, I kept all mine at. And I really, I remember struggling to get my hot spots up to 95. And they'd never be in the hot spot. No, they never were, they were there. always away from it. And yeah, so I should have, I guess, listened less to the literature and more to what the snakes were doing back then. But Yeah, if, you're, if your snake never goes to the hot side, even after you have fed it, your hot side is too hot. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so good job having a four foot cage when they're only using sixteen <laughs> inches on one side. <laughs> they're wedging themselves to the other side yeah. to stay cold. Uh, so yeah, so with with the the sambos, a warmer so ninety to ninety five will be fine. They they do like it warm, but you don't need to keep the entire cage warm. Don't do that. I I prefer belly heat. Um, I I know many first time people will buy a snake kit. That hurts me, but a snake kit from a pet store, which tends to come with a dome light on top of it, a heat light. I'm not saying that a Samboa won't use a heat light. Obviously, in the wild, they're using the sun. But I find belly heat better. They're a snake that likes to stay underneath the bedding, hiding. If you can give them a warm spot underneath the bedding, I think it is better for them than making them have to come out and lay and warm up. But that's just me. That's That's what I prefer. And that makes sense from the standpoint that um, the areas where they live, you know, the sand and the rocks and stuff that they're going to be on, they're absorbing a lot of heat. Yeah. So when they're out basking on it, they are getting belly heat, basically. And, and they are a they are, they're a nervous snake. They're not. I've got some that are very secure. But uh, when you first pick them up, I have a lot that are they're a very nervous snake. One, they're not. Again, they're not used to coming off the ground. Uh I always tell people if you go to grab them out of their enclosure, do not just reach in and pick them up. You need to scoop them up, get underneath their bellies, uh, because I, I think that a lot of them, in their evolution of their mind, if they're getting picked up from above, they're getting eaten, and and they will flail and everything. And once they start flailing, a bite is coming soon. Once once they they are trying to flail around, you can you're probably going to get bit. So if you scoop under them, usually you can kind of work them through your hands and calm them down. But I find them to be my, one of my more nervous snakes when I get them out first. And then I also have some that break that rule that are super calm every time I go to get them. I don't know if you have that, if you've ever had that issue where they're just, they kind of freak out at the beginning. Yeah. And I think what you talked about with scooping them, they really want to feel that security of being supported, like their whole body supported. It's, you know, it's not like, um, like take a rainbow bow. We both keep those as well. I mean, you could really hold those on, you know, two fingers yeah. and they're going to drape and be active and curious. And you do that with a sand boa and it's freaking out. It's scared. It wants to have, it wants to have that pressure under its whole body. Like, I don't, I mean, it just can't hold on maybe. Yeah. And it will, and if you don't support it well, it will shoot out of your hands. And if you're, 
holding it four feet above the ground, it will fall four feet to the ground. It's not, it's not going to try to hold on to your hand to keep from going. It's not like a lot of snakes, which will anchor that back in to try and move around to make sure they don't fall. They're going, they're going to fall. Uh, so again, when, when picking them up, I, I find a cage hook to be very good just to kind of get them started. Don't pick them up with a cage hook because they, they can't ride a hook. They, they will fall off of a hook, but it will at least get them started. And so uh, just be careful when picking them up. They do get a little nervous. But again, I still think, I think that's uh, – oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, you mentioned the cage hook. I think that's good advice for really any type of snake you're working with. Um, like kookaroos? Because you don't, you don't feed with a snake hook. So if they have a <laughs> – if they get that hook first, I, um, it trains them a little bit to know that, okay, this isn't a food response time. This is – you know, something else is going on. And I, I think you're a lot less – if you do the kind of hook training like that, you're a lot less likely to get those random bites where they just come shooting out at you. Yeah. So – uh, I still think they are, to me, a top five beginner snake just because of size. And once they reach adulthood, if you've handled it on a regular basis, I've got many that are amazing uh, to hand to a small child and go, here, hold this. Because they have that weight to them. They don't feel as fragile as, say, some colubrids do. Um, and they're going to move a little more. So they're kind of fun to watch. And they have, they've got a face that uh, a lot of people make fun of, but it makes people at ease even people that are afraid it's kind of, of disarming yeah yeah even people that are it doesn't afraid look aggressive of it's this derpy looking shovel head made for digging around in the sand that once you look at it, it's just it's not scary it doesn't have that normal boa or python look to it where it's kind of angled and everybody has that preconceived notion that there's a triangle shaped head that they're dangerous um, yeah. they don't have that they they are goofy with a little shovel face and they'll sit in the bedding with just their eyes right above the bedding waiting for food well, they're, they're beautiful too. Their patterns, their colors, um, you know, the wild type just by itself has such a vibrant orange and black contrast that I think there's a lot of visual appeal. So if it is somebody who's not used to snakes or maybe doesn't like snakes, um, you know, we, we mentioned the rubber boas being a really good ambassador, right? Yeah. But they are boring for a lot of people to look at. A lot of people say they look like worms, worms. and stuff. Yeah. You don't get that with the sand boas. So somebody can be kind of impressed with this dense pattern and these vibrant colors and, you know, and then like you said, they're disarming nature. Um, so they are, yeah, they are a good first one. I think the only downside to that, and I, you touched on this earlier is a lot of people complain that they're not active and out and about constantly. So that would be the only thing maybe why somebody wouldn't want it as a first pet, but. Yeah. Uh, and, and to me, that's not, I guess, because I keep stuff in racks. So if I want to see it, I go take it out of the rack and I hold it. And so that's not a huge thing for me. I'm not someone who wants a, you know, a cage in my living room just so I can come in and I can watch it, which is not a bad thing. This obviously may not be the snake for you if you're wanting something to, to come in and look at and watch. And you may want a corn yeah. snake, something a little more active and out and about. Um, as far as feeding for these, I, I don't do live. I say at all. I did feed live pinkies once this time around with this group of babies. Uh, and then I said, screw it. And I went to frozen. Um, but, but I also subscribe to the, you're going to eat frozen or die. That's kind of now, obviously with all animals, certain species, that is not a, that is not a possibility. I'm sure with some of the stuff that Travis keeps that frozen or die is not a possibility. It will be die. They will just die because Travis, yes. you're keeping some of the, the things that are not as commonly kept in the hobby. So they haven't been eating little tiny mice for generations and generations. So I, 
but I will start out with pinky mice. A lot of people will freak out. They'll go, well, this thing can't eat a pinky mouse. I promise you, the baby can. I know they're small, but they can eat a small pinky mouse. They can eat the whole thing. You don't have to cut a head off. You don't have to feed a tail. You don't have to cut pieces. They can take a whole pinky mouse. And from that point on, they'll never really get above an adult mouse. Uh, you could feed big females, maybe a small, small rat. Uh, but really, an adult mouse is the biggest you'll ever really get. And I find they, they switched. If you're having to get them on Frozen, they do Frozen very well. I know, Jason, you said you started out with live on some of yours and you switch them over. Do you find that process pretty easy? Yeah, I do with these. With the, you know, Like I said, I have a small group, so I can't talk from a, a standpoint of working with a lot of these. So I've only got six of the Kenyans, but I had, didn't have any problem getting them on Frozen Thawed. They came to me. I think all of them came to me eating live. And um, I probably fed them live off the bat once or twice and then um, transition them and they all took it right away. And so I will sometimes give them a live, like if I've got a lot of extra live mice in my rack that I'm trying to clear out space. And even when I do that, it's not like they get stuck. Like you, know, you hear about ball pythons doing that, right? If you got it on frozen thawed, you don't want to go backwards to live because they might not take frozen thawed again next time. Yeah, They transition really easy back and forth. I don't have any problems or complaints about that. Um, one thing that I do find kind of interesting with the sand boas, and I guess this would be for my, my Russians and the Kenyans, um, they seem to digest very quickly yeah. compared to some of the other snakes. And I guess like coming from such a warm environment, that would kind of make sense that there's you, your body, their body runs a little faster than probably something living in a more temperate mm -hmm. area. And so they're going to pass that food through a little quicker. And I started with the black Russians. And so my, I guess original thought when I noticed it with them was maybe because they do have that smaller feeding window and growth window that maybe they're geared to digest faster so they can get more meals. But the Kenyans don't ever really have that, that winter shutdown. No. Those do. And they, they do seem to digest just as quickly. And they, uh, I was going somewhere with that. My brain just went blank. Oh, um, they also have a very, what I think efficient digestive system. Uh, if you notice, they don't really have that big of a poop. Like you would think something shaped like a big old sausage is going to ha have a big mess, but they really don't like they, it's, it's, mm -hmm. if you're used to other boas leaving a big mess, these guys don't, which may be another uh, plus in the, them as a pet thing. They, they don't leave a huge mess, but, That's true. but I thought again, I find feeding, I also, one little trick I find with feeding them, if they're, if they're being a little timid, if you take the mouse and you rub it on the side of their neck, just behind their head, the side of their neck, seems to trigger them into wanting to turn around and bite it. And then uh, when they grab it, just wiggle a little bit, trick them, they can think it's alive, and then stop, and then they'll swallow it, and you're good. But I really have only ever – I think I've only ever had four or five babies, and I've had a, a lot of Kenyan babies, but four or five that just wouldn't eat. And that's pretty good. I mean, you're expecting that in general in a, in a litter of snakes. In the wild, you'd expect some that are just going to die, they're not going to thrive. Um, I think we get so spoiled in captivity that we feel that 100% of the babies should make it. When evolutionarily speaking, 100% of the babies aren't going to make it. Not, they're not all getting eaten by animals. Some just don't make it. So yeah. if you get 100% making it to where you can sell them in adulthood, that's great. But you may lose one or two, especially if you have Sambo's that are laying, you know, 20 plus babies. You know, you're probably going to lose one or two. It's a possibility. So now are you try and um, live with those babies that don't because you, you start your first attempt is always frozen. Thaw, I always right? start frozen. Um, this past year with this litter, uh, I had two litters. I had some that just, they, they couldn't get them. So I, I did try one 
one round with live. And they took them. And then I was like, that's it. That's all I'm doing. I gave them that one. I got them food into their stomach. It's either going to jumpstart them into eating or they're not going to eat. That's that's the option. And uh, over time, eventually it happens. I mean, they, they eventually give in and they eat. I haven't found too many of them, like I said, that really refuse to eat over time. Um, and sometimes you just got to leave it in there and walk away. Sometimes you got to sit there and tease feed them. It just all depends on the baby. Um, but I don't force feed them. I have tried, but I mean, I don't know if you've ever tried to force feed a snake that small. It's fucking miserable. I mean, by the time you get the head inside the mouth, the whole body's falling apart because it's a little tiny pinky and it's gooey. And so I was like, no, nah, I have tried mouse tails with some in the past that just refused to eat. And that got food into them. But I mean, what good? I mean, at some point, a mouse tail doesn't really have anything. I mean, there's not a ton of nutrition in a mouse tail. You're just trying to get it enough in there to try to keep it alive at that point. So. Yeah, I've only force fed animals, I think, twice. It's, um, I don't know. I, I'm kind of like, kind of like you mentioned a little bit earlier, like if they're, they're going to eat, if they're meant to eat, if they're not. And I, I don't know, I, I just really think it's almost more stress than it's worth. I mean, you're shoving nutrients down there and it might jumpstart them, but it, I mean, that might kill them too. Yeah. I don't, Travis, you had any experience force. I think some people would jump to force feeding way too early too. <clears throat> I had one snake that I force fed for a year before it finally ate on its own. Wow. And after that fiasco, I kind of adopted the, you'll either do it yourself or you'll die. Cause I'm not going to keep, I'm not going to keep genes. Exactly. In the, in the, you know, in the greater hobby that are ultimately detrimental. If you're not, functional enough to keep yourself alive then i don't want to perpetuate your genes in the hobby i don't care if you're the best looking snake i've ever seen if you don't eat then you don't eat exactly that's my thoughts too is um, i know that not everything i'm producing is going to be used as a breeder down the line but it may be and i don't see any good in again passing on and look the will to eat may or may not be genetic. I think it is, but it may or it may is. not be genetic. So see, Travis says it is, and he knows more than me. So it is. So fuck everybody else. It is genetic. They eat or die. Those are the options. Yeah, and that's, I mean, in the wild, a snake's born and it doesn't want to eat. No one's out there force feeding. It's certainly not going to propagate those genes. Yeah. So This is why everyone, if you breed, should own a king snake. Go out, buy you the prettiest king snake you like, and keep it. And then at breeding season, just feed it whatever decided not to eat. My king snake. I used to give them to my caiman. <laughs> that works. Too. That works too. My king snake got uh, three sand boas last breeding season, and she enjoyed all of them. Uh, what kind of king snake? I have a speckled king snake. Nice. Yeah, she is amazing. Solid yellow belly. Anyways, she's awesome, but she's great for getting rid of babies that don't want to eat. You know, the I'd like California mountain kings someday. That'd be cool. I'm sure Travis, he's got colubrid, so he has things that probably eat other snakes. No? No, not so much anymore. Oh, you're missing out. You need to get you a snake I had, I had, a, I had the blackhead for that, but... Oh, yeah. You know, she unfortunately passed. Man. I mean, I've got a gray banded... I've got gray banded king, but they don't... They're not big snake eaters. They're lizard eaters, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. Plus... You know they don't get big. They're they're not big like yeah. most king snakes either. Um, 
you know, the Ranthiophis, I wouldn't be surprised if they eat other snakes. But also, again, very thin, small, gracile. You know, they're as big around as my finger. Yeah, so yeah. I'm not I'm not feeding a lot of baby yeah, so ball every, pythons to that. <laughs> everyone needs to own either, you know, a Mexican black, a speckled king, or some sort of California king. Those will all help take care of those problems. So that brings up a question as we're talking about feeding a little bit. Um, I give mine exclusively rodents. Are you doing any kind of varied diet with yours? I do exclusively rodents. I mean, I'm sure they would probably eat other things. They, they have a pretty good feeding response for the rodents. Um, but I don't know. It's, it's so much easier for me to feed rodents. There's also, there is the slight fear that if you start feeding them something else that they may only want that. So I do some birds and stuff for uh, some of my other animals. I do. I did. I don't some really chicks. have anything small enough, I guess, for for the, the sand boas. I mean, I guess you could do Big small Dale, button quail. quail. Yeah, yeah. I did buy some chicks for like my corn snakes and pine snakes. I was like, eh, let's buy some chicks. They'll eat these, and they love them. But yeah, I don't have any. I mean, I my big female sand boa could probably take one of these chicks. Uh, but why risk it when an adult mouse works just fine? You know. And it's worked for me, but it doesn't mean that anybody out there, if you're keeping one as a pet, feel free to try with stuff. They'll, they'll, I'm sure they'll take it. Uh, so again, like I said, care is pretty good. The other great plus side, I think, to Samboas, Kenyan Samboas, is the colors and patterns. Uh, when I first got into them almost 20 years ago, there was Annery and Normal. That was that was what you found. My, my, my first pair was an Annery and a Normal, but there's so much more than Annery and Normal now. Uh, you've got some of the striped, which are, I guess we, we didn't cover the sign. We, we kind of skipped past scientific names because they're very confusing with this group of snakes. Um, but the Kenyan Samboa is either Eryx Colubrinus, Colubrinus, or Gonjiglo, whatever. I can't pronounce scientific names for the damn. But it's got like two genuses, depending on who you're talking to. And then when you get into things like the striped uh, Samboas, those are mixed with Rufescan Rufescan, however you pronounce that too, because that's another one of those ones that I don't know 100% how to pronounce. Which is kind I of don't a, either. I've always said Rufescens, but yeah. It's, yeah. So it's that's like I'll read it one way and that's what I stick with. So, And that's kind of like a locale, but it has also been given its own, at one point, uh, subspecies. And then at one point, it's been written as a subspecies, I mean, as a species. So, but it's kind of like a, uh, kind of like a locale of the, of the Kenyan Samboa. They are a very uh, monotoned color, full grown. But when bred to the Kenyan Samboas, you get striped babies. Uh, the genetics of it don't work exactly like incomplete dominance because sometimes you can get a full litter of striped babies or sometimes you can get a half. They normally work 50-50, but there are definitely those odds where people have gotten 100% striped. Um, so that is one, one gene that you see into a lot of things. I like the striped stuff, so most of my stuff is striped. Uh, I just I like the way it looks. Which means that it has the rufescence in there. Which right? means that, yeah. Now I've got a, I've got a bunch of just normal, regular, normal females because I can always sell annery babies and normal babies all day long. But some of the the morph stuff that I've got, I've made sure that they're striped first. Uh, the rufescence are also a smaller uh, group of samboas, so if you have pure rufescence, they're going to be ready to breed a little bit smaller than the Kenyan. But it doesn't hurt to wait until they get bigger but I have heard they are smaller. And so anything with that bloodline in them will also be smaller. Um, 
but out anery is a big seller. That's that's one of those ones. If you if you breed anery samboas, you're gonna breed. You're gonna sell every anery samboa you have. Uh, everybody loves a black and white snake, and they are I mean, as babies. They are black and white. It is super pretty. I always think of them. They remind me of the uh, sandworms from Beetlejuice. So yeah, I can see that. That's that's one reason I've always loved them, especially the way they come shooting out of the bedding when they go for food. Uh, but then there's also albino in San Kenyan samboas. And there's like three different types of albino. So it gets very confusing there. That is one area where it's very tricky. You have paradox albino. And unlike in some other snakes where albino and paradox are two different things here, paradox albino is one thing. It's its own form of albino. And then you have, well, and it's also, I think to to clarify that, uh, I believe Samboas, Kenyan Samboas are the only where it's an heritable paradox. Yeah. Yes. Where in yes. other animals you can have random paradox albinos pop in, but it's not heritable. They'll just be normal albino offspring at that point. Yeah. And it's- paradoxing in pretty much everything else is a random occurrence in the KSBs. It is a stable heritable trait. And it's a weird one because of the variation from low to high. Like so you'll have somewhere they'll go, this is a paradox. You look at it and go, there's not a single black spot on it, but it obviously came from paradox albino parents. So it is, but you gotta be very careful selling that and make sure people understand, look, it is paradox. You don't want them to buy this because albino wise, they look, if you get rid of the black spots, they look the same as the normal albino you're going to find in Kenyan Samboas. And they're not compatible not with the all. normal albino. No, they'll yeah. breed them together and you'll get normal looking babies. You know. So I don't have any paradox stuff. I have albinos, anries, and then normals that carry that. But mine are all the uh, the bell as a bell phase albino. Bell phase, yeah. The I bell think phase. it's the non paradox. Yeah. Uh, the paradox is also interesting when bred with the stripe. So regular paradox albinos tend to get these big blotchy if if they're a high expression, big blotchy black spots. Uh, same for the paradox snows, which are really cool looking to me. I think a paradox snow is really neat looking. Uh, but when mixed with the rufescan and the striping, it actually causes them to be small little specklings of black instead of big black spots. And so you start to get little speckles of black all over the body instead of these big blotches of black all over the body, uh, which is another thing to keep in mind uh, when, when breeding them, that you're not going to get big blotches. If you want big blotches, don't breed it to anything with, with the stripe in it because it's not going to be big and blotchy. And like I said, there is the bell albino. That's, that's another recessive trait normal recessive trait that is just an albino. And then there is also... Which came first? I want to say it was the bell. I don't want to lie. I want to say it was the bell, though. Um, I'm, that's another thing. If, if you get the Samboa book by Warren Treacher... You the, say I'm sure it's in here, yeah. The, uh, the morph section of this book is amazing. As with any book, though, the morph section will eventually become, you know... Obsolete. Obsolete. But for now, it is a great... Uh, a great thing with huge uh, pictures and lots of different versions. That's another thing when we talk about color, you talked about like in the natural color of Sambo is because of that bright orange and, and black, but really it's extremely variable. I've got some females that are yellow with Brown. I've got some that are yellow and black. I've got some that are uh, black and orange, Brown and orange and the shades of orange to yellow vary uh, a ton. So you can really find a lot of variable uh, variation in the coloration of even just the natural color of a Kenyan Samboa. So you're right. It looks like the um, uh, the bell phase was first. 
So it looks like that came in in 1992, and the Paradox, the first Paradox was imported in 1995. I want to say there's a T, I'm going to be wrong. I want to say there's a T-positive form of albino, but I could be wrong. I can't remember. Well, one of the two that you're talking about has to be T-positive, because T-negative, there's only one gene that gives you a T-negative albino, and that's the tyrosinase gene. So any albino that's not a tyrosinase negative albino yeah. is by default a T positive. It may look very similar. You know, this is the same thing you see in uh, boas with the sharp and the call. You know, they both look like classical albinos, but one of them has to be T positive while the other is T negative. Because when you I would assume the- it's probably the paradox then because they don't have that pink eye that the bell does then the yeah if the so paradox don't have the pink eye then they're probably the t positive well then because then bow is it gets confusing because you also have like the caramel which is also in like some of the ball pythons other things where they have what they tend to call a caramel albino which is what we normally which think is of a t positive, positive yeah t positive yeah. where you can look at that and go well that's not the albino i think of when i think about like uh, if you've ever seen a vpi uh albino boa the VPI albino boas are that T positive, and when you look at it, you go, "Well, that doesn't look albino to me." But then you look at the call and the sharp, and you go, "Well, yeah, it's it's white and red or white and orange. That's albino." So that also gets tricky as well. Um. Anyways, uh, I was looking at some of the other things in here. There, there's some locale stuff like the Dodoma. That's a, a locale. They tend to be uh, very clean pattern, brighter orange. Um, you'll see a lot of the. I mean, the fire this there's so many different things that uh i'm still trying to remember with some of the 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 way they bred them uh some people have mixed the two albinos into a visual uh i'm not a fan of that just because it it muddies up things for me down the road but there are people that are breeding uh double visual albino samboa so you get the bell and the paradox and they end up not having the dark black spots but you can see in their pattern where it would have been. It's off-colored where the spots would have been, but they are an orange and white snake or an orange and tan snake. And then... I can see where that would get very confusing for the offspring, especially if you were doing, say, double het to double het, because now you've got possible hets that are possible for one or the other, and then what do you breed that to, you know? Yeah, and, and just if someone doesn't down the road, someone doesn't clarify it, and they go out and they buy one thing, and you know, it's just uh-huh. it just causes some other issues for me. And again, I'm not saying people don't you breed whatever the hell you want to breed, but that one is just causes issues for me. And then there's some line bread stuff. Like I really like the, what they call the uh, uh, the Halloway reduced pattern. The H, you'll see it normally as HRP, uh, named after Halloway. He's the one that uh, bred them, but they are a very reduced pattern annery. Um, a lot of people love that those. That is a cool looking sandal. Yeah. They love those because they give them that, that dairy cow look where you have a lot of nice clear white and big blotches of black. But that is a line bred animal. So, I mean, you've got to keep keep that going. That's not a complete genetic thing. The anery is genetic. Uh, but the the lack of pattern is a line bred deal. And then there is a hypo. There's a hypo out there. I don't have any of that, but I've seen it. I do have paint. Paint is one that I really like uh, because I do like the stripes. Uh, that you get with the fescan. Paint also gives you a stripe, kind of. It gives you this thick, broad stripe down the back. Um, and it is a recessive trait. 
And that's a, a it is recessive. That was going to be my question. That is a cool look. That and the splash both are kind of really fun. So splash is an interesting one. It doesn't do much for me only because it's not the same every time. So uh, with splash, you've got it starts at the back end and the tail, and it's kind of a reduced pattern look towards the back end. Now I have seen some very extreme ones. People have been breeding them more and more, and so there are some more extreme ones now uh, where it's gotten up, you know, halfway up the body. And it really starts to get rid of some of the pattern there. It looks kind of cool. Like someone just splashed paint on them. So there's these little splatters of the color and then some non-color. So that that has, is cool. Has that morph been mixed with the paint morph? Maybe. it's. I mean, I know it's its own thing. And I'm sure somebody out there has probably done it. Uh, but you tend to see, see them separate from each other. Hmm. Um. I was trying to see what some of the other ones were. You can get, there's a lot of combinations now that are coming out that are really pretty. And a lot of people have spent a lot more time line breeding some of that stuff, getting cleaner patterns. They're, they're a fun snake. If you like breeding, they're a fun snake. One, they don't take a lot of space. Uh, so if you want to get a, a fun little small breeding project, this is an easy one to do. I find them to be, but. I Especially say, if you want to experiment a little bit with the genetics. Yeah. You know, be, because the Anri and the Albino in particular are um, very distinguishable. They're both recessive, which I think is, is, especially if you're new to breeding or new to genetics, that's really kind of a fun way to start because you can get some pretty neat stuff. And The only thing I'll say is variation. make sure you like the species. Uh, I've seen several people get into Samboas because they see them at shows and they get them and they realize they're just not the species for them. They are definitely their own thing. If, if you're into... Retics, you're probably not going to be into sandboas. Uh, you know, if you're into green trees, you're probably not going to be into sandboas. I'm not saying there aren't people that are, but if there's a certain thing that draws you to some of these other snakes, it may not be these. So start off with one and see if you like taking care of this little fat sausage that stays hidden underneath the bedding. And if you enjoy it, they are a great snake to, to do a little breeding project with and try some of the stuff. Um, and they're they're kind of a gateway drug into the other sandboas that we, we talked about earlier. Uh, so... I, I'm that's I know I'm partial because I own an entire room full of them, but I think they're an amazing little snake. So I think I have covered all the basics, but Warren Treacher definitely covers them way better than I did in his book. His book is is a great great book, and you can find the Sambo book. Just search for the Sambo book, and uh, like I said, it's got all the information that you'd ever need on all the Samboas. Um, and I want to say somewhere in here is the picture of the Samboa that fell out of a tree eating a bird. I want to say it's somewhere in this book, but this is a, yeah, this is a neat book. I think it's well worth the purchase. Um, I forget what I paid for mine, but I don't think it was very expensive at all, but I like, I mean, they do general care kind of like overall, but they also break it down by species, Yes, which I think is kind of neat. They talk about the natural history and the range, um, but also that, the, how the care is going to be specific that species are maybe different from the other ones, which I think can be really handy when you are keeping something that maybe looks very similar to it because they're, they are going to be a little different. Well, and they're the Samboa group is a very interesting group. It's a very widespread group going from, like I said, West Africa all the way over to India up into Europe and Russia. And those are obviously all drastically different environments. I mean, you have the Russian Samboas, those guys brewmate. I mean, you get them down into the fifties. So, yeah. So no, I, yeah, I actually get them pretty low. Um, I've got them down 
into the mid forties before with no effects or no ill effects, but I don't necessarily know that they have to go that low like the rubber boas do. And then you give them um, a warm spot in the high eighties, low nineties, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now those actually, the, I do get a little bit warmer with those than I do with the Kenyans. So that, um, I think they, they can handle that, but I do, I do try to keep their ambient down a little bit more too. So that is one thing I find out super weird about that group is, is they range temperature range from something that brew mates down into the fifties to something with a hot spot into the nineties. Whereas if we're talking about rubber bowas, if we put them in the nineties, they, they die. Those things, they don't want to get that warm. Right? Yeah. And they're not naturally getting that range of temperatures that the Russian sandals do. So, um, but yeah, which aren't actually, I don't think there was any spot they were ever, ever actually found in Russia. I think that they were from some countries that were, part of the former Soviet Union is where that name came from. Yeah. They're, look at the range map again, but I don't think they were actually in Russia anywhere. So there is a picture. I just found a picture in this book. We talk about, uh, you know, if you have snakes that don't eat and you feed them to other snakes, here's a picture of a striped normal that ate its brother. And you can see there's a big old lump in the back of the Samboa that ate another Samboa. So, yeah. So do you think that snake lived? Probably. I mean, not the one that got eaten on obviously, but <laughs> the one that did the eating, I mean, that's a that looks pretty rough (laughs) most of the time when i have heard of cannibalism events like that the one that ate the sibling ends up dying yeah that and that makes sense that's that's a pretty huge (laughs) huge meal there's also one thing you'll see um some pictures float around there's some calico stuff with the samboas but i don't know if anybody's actually made it has proven it out kind of like the calico with the rainbow boas there's a calico rainbow boa but that calico rainbow boa has been around for 20 years and you don't see a ton of calico rainbow boas out there there has been offspring that's had some calico with the rainbows but it's never been as extreme as that first one yeah from what i understand and it's very hit and miss you buy the babies and they might eventually start losing some color in their scales or they might not i was going to ask you about the um the calicos in here that's a pretty pretty neat looking samboa they're really cool looking but i have not seen anybody producing them on a regular basis which tells me that they're probably not i mean this one from in the picture is from 2004 and it you mean i don't see a bunch of them right now in the hobby which tells me that it's so this may be very similar to what we were talking about with the paradox then and the other species where it's kind of a random mutation that just pops up yes i would imagine um and then and then i'd like to know more about that and then obviously we mentioned uh, snows and there's several other things. People have combined different genes. Um, but yeah, that's the Kenyan Samboa. I, th- I personally think it's a great, a great first snake. Uh, I see people argue that all the time because they think it's a worm. But I mean, we're kind of attracted to those worm-like snakes. I mean, Travis has the Calabar yeah. burrowing boas, which is as they should be called, not pythons because yes. they are a boa. Um and then you've got the rubbers, and then you've also got the rubbers and several sandbows. So we kind of and rosy boas. I mean, and rosy boas, yeah, group really well. I will. You know, s- one thing you didn't talk about when it, about the morphs is the nuclear. I don't believe you touched on that. No, I didn't. Is that a line bread trait? Um, I I don't want to lie. I think it is. I think it is. Uh, again, some of them are line bread, and some of them are um like locale. Like if they don't come from that area, they don't tend to have that color as much. Um, Which would be when you talked about the domida, right? Yeah, the, domida, yeah, the, yeah. The domida, yeah, yeah. That's a that's a lo, locale. Um, okay. 
and I can't remember with the because you'll see like Dodoma fire and then you'll see nuclear and then I don't know they're just not the ones I've kept yet so I'm not up to up to date on them but I will say one thing that the I find the Sanboa community to be very welcoming it's a small a small community and we've all seen certain certain groups that are more welcoming than others and i have found that on the sambo groups that most of them are i mean they're you can like look warren treacher wrote this book you can find him on facebook and talk to him about anything at any point like he's not hard to find and so any of the quote unquote big names in sambo is, are super easy to get a hold of um and we know most of them so uh I, I like this one thing I like about this group. I've never felt like there's a uh, a dick measuring contest in the sandball group as there is in some other ones. Yeah, if you ask a question, you're not treated like it's a dumb question. Or yeah, that yeah. is true. I don't see a lot of people going, "Oh, why did you get that?" without knowing anything about it. So, which happens in a lot of the groups. Which don't get me wrong, you should definitely know about stuff before you buy it. But you know, we've all bought shit and didn't know about it. Yeah, but we can all start out a little nicer sometimes. <laughs> yes. That is true. Uh, I think I don't think I have anything left about the, the Kenyan Sambo other than people should have them. You should buy them. I have some. You should buy them from me. I've got Kenyan Samboas. Well, Travis needs some. Travis does need. Learned does. he doesn't have any. But Travis wouldn't want Kenyans. He's going to want. No, he wants reader. the most obscure one that there I would, is. Yeah, I, I, I'd need something completely strange and abnormal. Was it the Javelins? Those are not very common. That would be a cool one. Uh, I'm not going to lie. For a while, I was looking at the blacks. Those are really cool, by the way. I like those. I, you know what you would like. I love the rough scale samboas. I just they they look like little pit vipers. That they, they're they're very Coronado like. Yeah, and so I I find them to be super cool, uh, and I find them to be really calm. I have none of my none of my, and granted, I've got three of them. I could get a fourth one. It could be a dick. So that happens too. I mean, I've got enough adult Kenyan samboas to know that there's a range and temperament. I've got ones I can reach in and grab at any point. And I've got other ones that I'm like, eh, you're not so much a pet. Travis, what was the snake that you showed us uh, that you had gotten at the show last time we recorded that you got, like, I think that Scaphiophis. day? Scaphiophis. With the, the real shovel nose that we looked Scaphiophis. at? Scaphiophis. Scaphiophis, okay. So Peter's hook nose snake. I think before my internet cut out, I had talked about sometimes seeing some Samboas that had a similar nose like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so if you look on that, on the calico page at 209 yeah. i feel like that top male here i don't know you see that uh yeah that, one. that nose is kind of that's what yours remind your snake reminded me oh of. yeah hanging over the little yeah. overbite there yeah that kind of overbite with that pointy nose again i can't i just i love looking at these close-up pictures of the faces I, I you can't feel threatened looking at a samboa you just they look too goofy but so yeah the sandboa go get them uh and we'll talk about other sandboas along, along the ways but the kenyan sandboa i figured was a great one it's the first it's the most common one but i would definitely like to get into the the black russians and the russians i mean I, we always say black russian but they're that's a, a color morph basically there's a russian sandboa um and then the super black ones that are the ones everybody likes because everybody loves black snakes shiny black snakes at that yeah, they're pretty fun. And then uh, at some point, like I said, we'll talk about Arabian Samboas because, I mean, it's too goofy of a freaking snake not to talk about. 
It's an animated sock puppet. It really, it looks like a Muppet. It's <laughs> like you show that picture to someone and they go, well, someone Photoshopped this. No, it looks that dumb. It's, it's millions of years of evolution has said this dumb look works. Now those are all. And James is going to get that layers. tattooed on his forearm. <laughs> <laughs> there was the, was the one I saw was that wrapped around like a butter knife. A butter, a butter knife. knife. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. I did really like that tattoo. If I wasn't a bitch about getting tattoos, I probably would get that tattoo because it is kind of funny. That is a funny one. But what were you saying, Jason? Oh, I was, uh, the Arabians. Are those the other ones that lay eggs? Yes. They lay eggs that incubate for a longer time. I think it's, uh, roughly a month or so for those. Do those still look unshelled like the Sarens do? I don't know. I think they're a little more shelled. They're not. And that's another thing with, uh, with Sambo's and I had read on the evolution of live birth and eggs. A lot of people would look at it and go, well, obviously the one laying eggs must be evolving to not lay eggs. But in reality, the evolution to lay eggs and not lay eggs has gone back and forth throughout the history of Sambo's. It has not been a one track uh, evolution. They have evolved to give live birth. They have evolved to, lay, evolved to lay eggs and they've gone back and forth through it. So we're just, well, in a- isn't it the, it's the Saharans. They've got like multiple populations, and some of them do life birth. Do they? Isn't it? It may be. It very, very well may be. Or maybe it's the Arabians. I know. I know one of the Sanboa species. Like some of the populations will lay eggs, and some of them do the life birth thing. It easily could be. You no, know, now, a- st- now that you say that, I think that um, uh, Herptological Highlights did a Sanbo episode where they discussed that. And there was even, maybe even a record of one that had eggs and live birth at the same time, that like one female or something. I want to I don't give that a listen. That, but I mean, yeah, it, it wouldn't. I surprise me that one again. It's the same thing with there's there's a couple lizard species. There's that a are like there's that. a skink in Australia that's in the middle of evolving. Uh, the ones higher elevation are giving live birth. They're holding the eggs within uh, because it's cooler and they can't lay the eggs and they can't incubate properly so they're holding them within and then giving live birth and they found the ones at the lower elevation are actually still laying the eggs and they're hatching out uh, but they're still the same species yeah excuse me um maybe that's what i'm thinking of so it's it's definitely a weird it's a weird process another thing that's interesting about the live well, i guess we don't know if we really mentioned it but they are a live bear for the most part except for those two species mentioned they if you're a person that has ever bred boas because you always a- egg laying species owners tend to look at live birth as gross, which I don't, I, I personally love the giant goo of boa babies, but uh, the sand boas are a third type of birth. We always think of eggs and then like pythons and then think of live birth like boas with the big old ball of goo. But sand boas are a third type of live birth, whereas they hatch internally out of whatever the little gel shell they're inside internally and they come out you know, wiggling around, moving around, no shell around them of any sort, which if you'll ever, when you get to breeding them, and you've seen, I'm sure with the Russians, when you breed them, there's not much of a mess uh, left no. behind them when they, when they have the babies, there's a little bit of blood, a little bit of wet bedding, and that's it. I can't remember what that, what that type of, I knew it at one point, what that type of uh, birth is. Viviparous, oviparous, and ovoviviparous. Yeah. So ovoviviparous, that's the egg layers, right? I think that's oviparous. oviparous. I think ovoviviparous are the ones that the egg. God, it's been too long since I've done this. Viviparous is live. Yes, that's the that's what we only think of when we think of like a boa constrictor. And then I think oviparous is the egg, and ovoviviparous is the 
eggs held internally but hatched live. Yeah, which would be the samboas. So that's another thing. If you if you want to breed, they don't give you that that goo. That's not. There's no quote unquote gross. That's goo. true. You could almost spot clean the birthing area and leave the rest of the bedding in there, and you're not doing that with a with a boa oh, or hell rainbow no. with, or something. No, with, with a boa, you're gonna have to get in there and scrub and scoop, and it's it's a mm-hmm. lot of goo. But again, yeah, I love oviviparous producing eggs by means uh, or producing young by means of eggs which are hatched within the body of the parent. Yeah, so that's that is what your Kenyan Samboas do. And, and it was funny. I was on a, maybe on the episode, it was on something. I was on a podcast where I heard that and I had never put two and two together. I'd, I'd bred boa constrictors. I had bred Samboas and I'd never thought before, oh yeah, there's not a big mess after my Samboas give birth. And then I was like, well, that makes sense. They're not, they're not laying these giant jelly egg masses like, like the big boas are. They're holding all that internally. Um, when breeding them, I will tell you though, they're going to look like they're about to give birth for like a month. Like you're going to look at them and go, there's no way this thing's not giving birth tomorrow. Yeah, it's not. It's going to be that fat and stuffed for like a month. And then one day there's just going to be babies there. They, uh, they get really, really uh, lumpy in the back end. And, and they'll be that way for a while. But Do you feed one gravid? Yeah. I feed small meals and they take them. I I've I have found I don't say I found I have not found ill effects to feeding live. Uh okay. feeding while while pregnant. But you know, boas in general will will eat any time. I mean I do it to my, my boa constrictors as well. They'll but I'll feed them like a small rat. Like a big female boa constrictor gets a small rat. So like a adult Samboa who is pregnant is getting a hopper. You know, it's not getting an adult mouse. But I find they, they tend to put weight back on easier. Um, I don't have a bunch of stillborns with the babies. I don't know if there's a correlation between the two, but it's worked for me. So I think somebody, if they're a, if they're a Python person who's used to, all right, well, as soon as they get gravid, it's not going to eat. We just leave it alone. If you're going to try your hand at some of these live bears, understand you can still feed them a little bit and help them out a little bit, uh, because they'll still eat. They can still use that nutrition while having to take care of all these babies. Even though they're not, the babies aren't technically feeding off of the parent. They're still inside of an egg inside of them. But well, and she's still giving a lot to the babies. Yeah. You know, so that makes sense. Um, that is one thing. You know, you talked about getting the weight back on. I feel like the smaller snake species in general, they really do bounce back a lot quicker than the bigger snakes, which is kind of that's true. Kind of nice, you know. I still with live bears, I'm still a year on year off person. You know, I know a lot of people that do things with eggs, whether it's corns or ball pythons. They will breed an animal back to back years, but I think, I mean, the Samboas will hold these babies for four to five months. So that's four to five months that they're having to deal with trying to keep these babies alive in them, and they're all this. I like to give them a full year off once they lay the ba- the babies before I try and breed them again. That makes sense, um, especially like you know, like like boa constrictors or like rainbow boas who will go six months holding these babies inside of them. Um, and you've seen, I mean, after they give birth, sometimes these rainbow boas will look pretty thin. Deflated, yeah. So uh, that's one thing anybody doing live birth, I suggest a year off. If you, if you do how to do back-to-back, you're just going to – it's going to be detrimental to your animal. I feel. Don't – that's that's my personal opinion. So, all right. It's time to go. We will be back next time with uh, another small reptile of some sort. I don't know what's going to be yet. We'll have to figure it out. I've got some ideas. A surprise. 
It'll be a surprise. I've got some ideas for ones. I got to reach out to some people. Uh, Travis has some ideas. Jason has some ideas. But there's tons of small reptiles or amphibians or maybe even invertebrates at some point uh, that we will talk about. And there's also still like five more species of Samboa that we can we can talk about <laughs> at some point. So, uh, Travis, if people want to get a hold of you, what's your weird-ass email for them? Email is asplundii, A-S-P-L-U-N-D-I-I at Gmail. Isn't that the stuff you put in a sweet tea in place of sugar? No. <laughs> it's a plant. <laughs> Leave me alone. I'm a freak. Um, you can also find me on Facebook, Travis Wyman. I am not the motocross racer, so you know, don't go messaging him about snakes. He's probably going to think you're crazy. Or do. Or you can find me at snakes underscore n underscore bakes on Instagram. Jason, if people want to get a hold of you because they want to get some of those awesome solid black sand bows at some point. Um, top line constrictors. I got a Facebook page or at uh, Gmail. And then uh, if you want to get a hold of me, it's uh, Simply Serpents on Facebook. I think I have an Instagram, but I never I rarely ever post my Simply Serpents Instagram. And then you can also reach out to me on our on our parent podcast, which is the Reptile Gumbo Podcast. You can Reptile Gumbo Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and at gmail.com. But uh, yeah, thanks for y'all listening. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks. Goodbye. Good night. Good night.